0: Brett McKay here and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. We all make many decisions every single day, from little ones like what to eat for breakfast to big ones like whether to take a new job. Given how regularly we're deciding, we certainly have a vested interest in getting better at this skill. But how do we do so? How can we get better at making big choices and spend less time dithering over the insignificant minutiae that often overwhelms our mental bandwidth? And why did anyone teach us how to do this stuff to begin with? My guest today has written a book that offers an education in a subject matter many of us missed out on. Her name is Annie Duke. She's a former professional poker player and is now a decision-making expert and strategist, and her latest book is How to Decide, Simple Tools for Making Better Choices. Today on the show, Andy shares many of those practical tools, beginning with how to overcome hindsight bias and resulting, which is our tendency to judge decisions based on their outcomes by doing something called knowledge tracking. We then discuss how to figure out the probabilities for things that seem difficult to predict and the importance of embracing an archer's mindset when making decisions. We then get into when you should make decisions slowly, and when you can speed up, how to employ the only option test when making a choice, and why when it Decision is hard, it's actually really easy. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is/slash/how to decide. Annie joins me now via clearcast.io. Annie Duke, welcome back to the show.
1: Thanks for having me back. I'm so excited. This was when we talked, what was it? Gosh, it was two years ago, right?
0: Yeah, when your first book, two thousand nineteen.
1: Yeah, that was absolutely one of my favorite podcasts that I did last time. So I'm so excited to be back.
0: Well, same here. Thinking in bets is the book we talked about previously. It's a book that i I keep thinking about, even though I read it several years ago. And think about the ideas. You got a new book out, though. It's a follow up called How to Decide: Simple Tools for Making Better Choices. And this book is basically it's like it's a workbook. I would describe it of. The tools you talked about in a very, uh, I think, theoretical way in thinking in bets, but showing people how to be more explicit and how to use them. And as I was reading this, I was thinking, how come no one ever told me this stuff before? Because, (laughs) right, I mean, like, we make decisions all the time, small ones, really big ones, but no one ever sits you down and be like, here's how you can make a good decision. Like, why is that? Like, why why don't we get taught explicitly how to do something we do every day?
1: Yeah, so, you know, I think this is a very deep question. So just as background, I co-founded an organization called the Alliance for Decision Education. And we're actually trying to tackle exactly this conundrum that you're pointing out, which is why don't we teach decision education to like K through 12 students? You know, when, when I talk to people and I ask them, you know, did you ever have an explicit class on decision making, you know? If anybody has, it would have been in college and only if you were pursuing like certain types of majors, right. right? Like, I had
0: a I you, took a philosophy of decision making class in college,
1: yeah, yeah, exactly. So nobody really teaches you how to make a good decision, which is kind of strange. So I you know, I have some theories about it. so i'll I'll just throw a couple things out there. One is, you know, our educational system is set up actually, from way back when from when england obviously was very colonialist they had you know people who were far and wide and everybody needed to sort of learn very specific skills like how to sail so everybody had to be taught the same thing and decision making actually wasn't something that they were trying to teach because they wanted people people needed to all be doing kind of the same thing and have the same skills so for example the trigonometry is in there not just because it's really good for sailing, but also because it's hard. And it doesn't directly feel like it's practical or connects to anything. So it was meant as a screener that would tell people, you're going to go on to sort of great things because you had the grit to be able to get through trigonometry and all of you aren't. And, And then that translated into American education with tracking. So trigonometry is literally a way to clear out the... People who aren't willing to work really hard at things that don't have any purpose, which is kind of a weird thing to have in the school system. So our curriculum today is not really designed for today. It's designed for a long time ago. I think that's problem number one. Problem number two, I think, is that it's kind of like walking, right? Like you've been walking your whole life and it would never occur to you that you should take a class on how to walk. And everybody has been making decisions their whole lives. And so the idea, I think, that you would maybe be bad at that, uh, that it would be really good if you had a class that really taught you how to make a good decision, I don't think that it's really intuitive. I don't think parents in general think they're poor decision makers. I think that they probably think they're pretty qualified to teach their children. And even when you look at the history of science, it wasn't until... You know, Kahneman, Tversky and Richard Thaler came along and people like Barry Staw, where they started saying people aren't perfectly rational. If you give people the information that they need and let them make decisions, they actually aren't going to make decisions that are necessarily really rational. And the ways that they're irrational are actually quite predictable. And this was, you know, in the 70s, this was heresy within science and economics up until then the the assumption was you know a rational actor so we didn't really even start to figure out the ways in which people are bad at decision making until the 70s and then it wasn't really widely accepted until gosh you know it started to gain some traction into the 80s and 90s and then obviously in the last two decades people have really become wise to this and then you have you know I think it was 2014 that thinking fast and slow came out and then the general public really started to get it. So we've been pretty behind the curve on this. And so the fact that it hasn't gotten into the school system is maybe that not that surprising. So that that's kind of what we're trying to do at the Alliance for Decision Education is kind of catch K through 12 education up with where the science is and actually where business is, because business has really accepted that this is something that they need to work on.
0: Well, let's talk about some of these tools you you highlight in the book, and the first one we talked about this a bit in thinking in bets, but I think it's a really when I learned about this concept, it really it's changed the way I think about I mean, how I interact with the world and what I, how I think about the world. and it's this idea of resulting. Mm. so what is resulting, and then how does that get in the way of us making good decisions?
1: Yeah, so it's that is. A concept that has really taken hold from Thinking in Bets, and I'm quite pleased because I, I think it's a really important concept for to start understanding kind of where our decision-making goes wrong. So what we want to think about is, like, how do we actually learn to become good decision-makers? And it seems obvious that the way that we do that is from experience. So, you know, you make decisions, you get outcomes from of the decisions, and then you sort of tie those feedback loops together, then that helps you become better at making decisions. That would be what one would hope but resulting actually really gets in the way. So this is what resulting is. It's basically what it sounds like. You look at an outcome and depending on the quality of the outcome, was it good? Was it bad? Did you win? Did you lose? You then use that outcome, the quality of the outcome to work back to the quality of the decision. So the decision that I open thinking in bets with is Pete Carroll in the Super Bowl in 2015. He's obviously not playing, he's coaching and he's against the Patriots. And there are 26 seconds left in the game. So obviously it's fourth quarter. They're on the one yard line of the Patriots, it's second down. They have only one timeout. This is actually a really difficult situation for them because they're down by four. So they need to be able to score a touchdown. They can't just kick a field goal. They obviously have three downs that they could do that in, second, third, and fourth down, but they only have 26 seconds left. So this is quite a hard problem here because you have a clock management problem given that you only have one timeout. So everybody expects Pete Carroll to have Russell Wilson hand the ball off to Marshawn Lynch. Great running back. He doesn't do that. He has Russell Wilson pass. Russell Wilson passes to the right corner of the end zone, and the ball is intercepted by Malcolm Butler, and everybody goes nuts that this is absolutely the worst play in Super Bowl history. In fact, USA Today, the headline that they had the next day was that it was the worst play call in NFL history, in all of NFL history. Now, this is a really classic case of resulting because what you can... Do, I mean, if you go look at any of the articles that were written at the time, like the USA Today article, for example, it's pretty statistics-free. So it doesn't tell you kind of what you need to know in order to determine whether that was a good decision or not. Things like how likely was it that Marshawn Lynch was going to score? Or more importantly, how likely was it that the ball was going to get intercepted? But I could tell you those things. You know, Marshawn Lynch was going to score about 20% of the time. It's actually lower than people think it was. The ball was going to get intercepted less than 2% of the time. But I don't really need to do that. All I need to do is do a thought experiment with you, which is imagine it's the same situation, 26 seconds left in the Super Bowl against the dreaded Patriots. They're on the one-yard line, down by four. Pete Carroll has one timeout, does this really unexpected thing, and he he calls for a pass play. And the ball is actually complete for the game-winning touchdown. So they catch the ball, game-winning touchdown. I'll just ask you, like, what do the headlines look like the next day?
0: Greatest play, gutsy, amazing.
1: That's right. So all of a sudden, weirdly, USA Today doesn't say it's the worst play in Super Bowl history. So in both cases, whether the ball is complete or intercepted, people make an assumption about what the decision quality is. If it's intercepted, they say the decision quality is terrible. If it's complete for the game-winning touchdown, defeating the Patriots and denying them their fifth Super Bowl ring at the time, you know, then it's the greatest play in Super Bowl history. And that's why he's going to go to the Hall of Fame. But here's where we can see that this is an error because the decision is the decision, right? There's math that goes into it. I told you a little bit about it. Marshawn Lynch is only going to score about 20% of the time. Remember, he's in a compressed part of the field on the one-yard line, so there's a lot of Patriots there to stop him. The ball is only going to get intercepted less than 2% of the time. There's some other things that go into that, like if you pass, you're more likely to get three plays off instead of two, which someone would assume you'd like against the Patriots. And those are the things that we should care about as we're trying to determine what the quality of the decision is. But the problem for us as decision makers is that If I were to go through that, and I just went through a little bit of it, but if I were to go through the whole thing, it's very complicated, right? Like you have to understand probability, statistics, and probability, what that does in terms of win probability, depending on the choice that you make. You need some options theory in there so that you can understand, you know, what the value is of having the extra play and how you might actually get to that. So there's a lot of conditionals in there as well. It's just, it's complicated. And this is the, Sort of what we face when we're trying to look back on our decisions, it's complicated. That's whether it's the Super Bowl and the last play of the Super Bowl or trying to hire somebody based on just a CV, a few interviews, and some references. These things are very complex. So in order to simplify, what we do is we say, well, I know what the result was. The ball was intercepted. So therefore, it must have been a terrible play. I know what the result was. It was the game-winning touchdown. Therefore, it must have been a great play. And you can see why it has to do with that, sort of how complex getting to the decision quality is because we don't do this kind of resulting as much when the decision quality is really clear. Like if I go through a green light and I get in an accident, you don't tell me going through a green light was a bad decision. But that's because it's super, like we've already decided that. It's the rules of the road. Right? This is getting into 2 plus 2 equals 4 as opposed to some kind of you know, strange like linear algebra or something like that. Right, so, so it's a way that we kind of simplify the world when we shouldn't that really messes our decision-making up.
0: Gotcha. So what resulting does, it prevents you from learning whether you're actually making good decisions. Like you could be making a decision that's terrible. Like the, the process, what you're thinking about is just absolutely terrible. But you get good outcomes because of just plain dumb luck. But you think to yourself, well, I'm making a great decision and really eventually it's going to bite you in the butt, but you'll never know that because you're just looking at the outcome.
1: Yeah, it's, it's actually, I would say it's actually worse than that. So you do some things, you get some great results from it. You decide that the decisions that led to that great result were amazing. Then you do those things again. And maybe now you don't get such great results from it. But now you get caught in motivated reasoning where you start to say, well, I know the decision quality was good, so this must just be bad luck. Because it would be really, really hard for you to think that the success that you'd had in the past from the decision-making that you'd done previously was not actually because you made great decisions. That doesn't really fit well uh, with the way that we want to think about ourselves and we want to think about ourselves in a positive way. So what kind of happens is that then part of what happens with motivated reasoning is that we'll start to sort of look for reasons that we can maintain that our decisions were good. And this becomes really problematic as we're thinking about ourselves. So when we look at other people, we do pretty straight resulting, which is if there's a good outcome, it's from a good decision. If there's a bad outcome, it's from a bad decision. But when we're actually thinking about ourselves, we have this real need to maintain a positive self-image. And part of that, obviously, is I'm a good decision maker. Like I, I do good things and bad things aren't my fault. And because of the presence of luck, now we get into trouble, which is we have some success. We believe that our decisions were good. Maybe they're very low quality though. And eventually they're gonna, as you said, bite us in the butt. But when they start to bite us in the butt, we start to blame you know, other factors.
0: Okay. So with resulting, we judge the quality of our decision based on its outcome. And part of overcoming that is trying to objectively separate out what was actually luck and what was skill in the decision. But then there's another bias connected to resulting, which is hindsight bias. And that's where you think the outcome of something was more predictable than it was. And your your memory actually can get distorted. So when you're looking back on something, you think you really knew all along how it was going to turn out. And there's a tool you suggest using called knowledge tracking that can help with both of these things. So can you walk us through knowledge tracking?
1: When you're thinking about a decision, actually think to yourself, what did I know at the time of the decision? What revealed itself after the fact? Those things that revealed themselves after the fact, were they knowable beforehand? If they were knowable beforehand, you still aren't done though. You want to move on to two other questions. Could I afford to get it? So... You know, as an example, I think I have an example in the book. You've only lived in the South your whole life. You get offered a great job in Boston and you're trying to decide whether to move there because you're concerned about whether you like the weather. You go up for a couple days in February just to kind of check it out. Doesn't seem so bad. The job's a great opportunity. So you move there and it turns out that you hate it. Your first winter, it's just like brutal and you end up moving back to the South. So this would be a good example where knowledge tracking would be really helpful. Like, what did I know at the time? Well, I knew that New England had bad, you know, winters. I wanted to kind of try to figure out if I liked it or not. So I went up there for a couple of days in February. It didn't seem so bad. And so I took the job. What revealed itself after the fact? Well, it turns out that when I had to endure a whole New England winter, I hated it. So now you can say to yourself, was that knowable beforehand? The answer is yes. Yes. Right, like I could have gone and spent a winter up in New England before deciding, except that I couldn't afford to do that because the job wouldn't have still been available to me. So that's just kind of like, then you just sort of shrug your shoulders and notice that that's a case where hindsight bias really happens, where like your friends are going to be like, I knew you'd hate it there. And you're going to say to yourself, I should have known I would have hated it. But this is actually a really helpful tool to, to sort of get you away from that. Because what you can see is, well, of course, I couldn't have known that I would hated it. I I hated it because I couldn't have been up in New England for a whole winter to be able to find it out. Then you can ask yourself the next question, which is, even if I couldn't have known it beforehand, either because it wasn't knowable or because I couldn't afford to go find this information out, could I use that in my decision process going forward? And then another tool that you can use, and this is in retrospect, is actually to try to recreate for yourself what are the possible things that could have occurred, right? So if you're thinking about, for example, like the job in Boston, to actually go back and try to get yourself away from that feeling of inevitability that resulting creates and hindsight bias creates that obviously it was going to work out horribly and so therefore I should have known it, which is kind of what ends up happening. And instead say... Let me try to remember, like at the time that I was thinking about the job, what were all the different ways it could have turned out, right? And you can think like, I could have loved the job and become a winter nut who then goes skiing. I could have hated the job, but loved Boston so much that I ended up staying in Boston and I found another job, right? I could, you know, I could. it could have been okay. Like the job could have been okay and Boston would have been fine. And I could have spent a few years there and ended up, you know, moving back kind of on my own terms. I could have loved the job, but hated the weather so much that I left, or I could have loved the job, but hated the weather, but felt it was worthwhile to stay, you know, and we can see that once we start to do that, we start to realize like, no, the thing that happened wasn't inevitable. There were all sorts of ways that this could have turned out. So that's kind of like, the, it's. It, those are sort of the first three chapters of my book, you know, of how to decide the follow-up or trying to help you with these retrospective problems. How do I look back on a decision and actually start to dig down into the decision quality without falling into these traps where I start to, you know, do resulting or hindsight bias or whatever. And and hopefully those tools are pretty clear. The knowledge tracking tool in particular, I think it's quite powerful.
0: Yeah, I like that. I actually am going to start doing that now that when I'm making a decision, like here's the information I'm using to make that decision. Like actually write that down explicitly.
1: Yeah. So that actually brings up a really good point. If we're looking at something in retrospect where we don't have any record of what we thought at the time or what the information that we, we had was or what the process that we went through, who we talked to, who we asked for advice, what they thought, any of that stuff. That then becomes really hard as we go back and try to do these reconstructions. You know, We, we try to do this knowledge tracking and try to figure out what did we know at the time. Or we, tried to, we try to reconstruct sort of these simple decision trees of like, here's the decision I'm thinking about, what are the different outcomes that could occur? It's just hard to do in retrospect. So the big lesson of that first section of the book is do it beforehand, that a really great decision process is going to have you explicitly creating some sort of evidentiary record of what your beliefs are, what your rationale or thesis is for the reason that you're thinking about doing something, what you think the different outcomes might be, how likely you think those are. It's going to have you interacting with other people to get their viewpoint on it in order to improve the quality of the knowledge that's going into the decision that you make. And that's all going to, you're going to have a record of that so that when you do get the results, you can look back and you can say, what was my rationale? What did I believe at the time? What was the information that I had? What did I go find out? Right, And then you can actually ask yourself these questions in a much clearer way that's going to allow you to close these feedback loops in a more objective way. It won't be completely objective, but it's going to be a lot better than it would be otherwise. And this now allows you to create really good learning loops that, are act- that that's actually going to improve your decision-making going forward in a much, much faster way. It's going to do a lot more heavy lifting.
0: We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. And now back to the show. So we've talked about analyzing past decisions so we can make better decisions, but then you also lay out like how do you make a good decision that you haven't made yet? And you basically lay out this process where you look at preferences, payoffs, and probabilities. You make a decision tree. So what you do is you say, here's my decision. And then you are going to list out reasonably all the potential possible outcomes. So like, you know, you can't Obviously, you're not going to be able to do every single possible outcome, but no. reasonable outcomes. It's so like the example you gave of you know, moving from the south to Boston for a job. You know, possible outcomes, and you had to look at the, the the payoffs, the upsides, and the downsides, like the pluses and the negatives. So, if you move to the south to Boston for this job, it could be you love the job, you love the weather, you hate the job you love the weather, you love the weather, hate the job, you hate the job. I mean, just that's what you're kind of doing. Right. So, so you're going to do that. But I thought the really interesting part of this process is figuring out probabilities. And humans are really bad at this for the most part, or yeah. describing probabilities. So like, okay, how do you do that? So like, how do you figure out with the decision of you know moving from the South to, the, to Boston, like the probability of whether you're going to love the job and... You know, love the weather, love the job. Like, how do you assign something for something you don't even know?
1: Yeah. So, th- this actually brings up something really deep. I mean, the, the answer is you guess. And it it takes a particular type of mindset to be willing to do that. And the mindset is to say, look, no guess is ever like super random, pretty much about anything. It's about Figuring out when we think about that, you know, we have that distinction between a guess and an educated guess. It's about how much educated can I get into it? Because if I can, if I can get a little bit more educated into the guess than I would have if I hadn't tried, that actually going to really improve my decision making. So you can kind of, so any decision is really just just a prediction about the future, right? If I'm thinking about moving to Boston, I'm making some predictions about what's going to make me happiest in the future. Now, the future is always gonna be cloudy to us as mere mortals. But if you're willing to make some guesses, then you can get to a point where it's less cloudy. And even though it's not gonna be a perfectly clear picture where you're gonna know exactly, less cloudy actually does a lot of work. It gets you pretty far. So let's let's think about what do I mean by this that all guesses are educated guesses, that there really isn't anything where you should say, like, I don't know. Period. Right? It should be what do I know? Is really what you should be asking. So I'll give you I'll give you an example. Okay. So I have a new puppy. He's sleeping next to me. You've never seen this puppy, correct? Correct. Okay. How much do you think this puppy weighs?
0: Um, 15 pounds.
1: Okay. And how what's the lowest amount you think the puppy weighs?
0: Uh, five pounds.
1: And what's the most amount you think the puppy weighs?
0: 25.
1: Okay. So that's great. Uh, So you can't see the puppy. We're not on a video system. I haven't showed you a picture of the puppy. You don't even know what breed the puppy is. Don't know. Yeah. You don't know how old the puppy is. You just know it's a puppy. Right. So you know a little bit of something about how old it is, but not a lot. And you just gave me a really good guess. And by the way, your lower bound and upper bound captured exactly the weight. So you gave a lower bound of five and an upper bound of 25. He's 10 pounds. Okay. So you actually did your job. You you found the right answer. It was in that range. Now, was your point forecast of 15 exactly right? No, but it was pretty darn close when you think about the weights of all things, right? Like, if you thought, like, what's the full range of things could weigh, it's zero to, I don't know, how much, how much does the earth weigh, right? Like, millions of pounds, trillions of pounds. So what we've just discovered is that when I asked you to guess at the weight of this dog, even though you've never seen the dog, you started, I assume, to recruit, well, what do I know about puppies? Right? Like, well, it's a puppy. So would she describe a dog that's over six months as a puppy? Maybe, but probably not. I just got the puppy. So that means the puppy's probably young, right? How much do puppies in general weigh? How much do dogs in general weigh? How much do they compare to other things? And even if I asked you something like, which I assume you don't know the answer to, maybe you do, like what's the distance between the earth and Jupiter?
0: Yeah, I have no clue. I would say uh, 2 million miles.
1: Right, so lower lower bound and upper bound. Yeah,
0: lower bound 2 million, upper bound 10 million. Okay, so would.
1: I would probably, so I know a little something more than you do, right? So I know that the sun is 93 million miles away. Oh, wow. Right, but notice though, even so, you knew it had to be in the millions. So did you get it exactly right? No, but but you cleared away a lot of the possibilities because you understood that it at least had to have a million in front of it. And that's that's actually a really big improvement over not having tried it at all. So when you think about like, what's the likelihood that I'm gonna, you know, enjoy the weather in Boston? The answer isn't, I have no clue. Because you know things about yourself. You've experienced some cold weather, right? Maybe you went up there in February for a couple days. So you tried to get some more educated into the guests and you didn't think it was so bad. So, you know, when you go up there, you recognize like, okay, like I I think that I'm probably likely enough to like it that I'm willing to do this. And are you gonna get an exact answer? Of course not. But if you can get close, it matters. So I I talk about this as like the archer's mindset that we're really focused on the bullseye and we feel like we've got to get to the bullseye. And what that causes us to do is, is either claim we have the bullseye when we don't, right? Or not try at all because we recognize we won't be able to hit it. And instead, we need to have more of an archer's mindset to say, in archery, you have a target. And while you might be aiming at the bullseye, you are you also get points for hitting the target. And so we want to realize that in decision-making, we get points for hitting the target. And then beyond that, we get a lot of points for actually defining the size of the target because that does a lot of work for us. So like in the puppy example, you said your lower bound was five pounds and your upper bound was 25 pounds for the weight of this puppy right? Well, that tells me something about how uncertain you are. When I asked you for the lower bound on Jupiter and the upper bound on Jupiter, this was a much wider range. Why? Because you're less certain, you have less knowledge about the relationship between Earth and Jupiter than you do between, you know, the lower bound of the weight of this puppy and the upper bound of the weight of this puppy, which, which you know a lot more about. We can take that to the extreme. If I asked you, what, what's your birthday? You would give me the bullseye. Because you know it.
0: Gotcha. So, yeah. So you know more than you think you do. Right. Gotcha. All right. So, yeah, we, so you sign a probability and you even recommend like, don't just, uh, don't just settle for likely or not likely, like, actually put a percentage on it because that'll make things more concrete for you.
1: The reason why we don't want to use, words that, so there's all these words that describe probability that we use every day, like likely, always, never, real possibility. Like we say that, like, do you want to go out to the movies this weekend? Yeah, I think that's a good possibility, right? Like, So so that would be a a way that we throw this around. But you, you can think about, we do this like in a hiring process, right? Like, what do you think of that candidate? I think there's a good possibility they'd be great. So we use these kinds of terms all the time. Well, the reason why we don't want to is kind of twofold. One is that we want to be able to circle back and actually close those feedback loops. And if we use these kind of mushy terms, it's hard for us to do that because the, these terms have pretty broad meanings. And when you actually ask people, like if you survey people on something like real possibility, which is a term we use a lot, and you say, hey, you know, when you use that word, like what probability do you actually intend? You get a range from about 15% to 90%. So that should be the first clue that there's a problem with those words. So the first problem has to do with that feedback loop is that when you go back and you try to close your own feedback loops and you've said that something's a real possibility, you can kind of mush around in there in order to motivate reasoning is going to get there, right? Because you can say, well, I said it was a real possibility. I didn't say it was like, so if like, for example, if I hire someone and they turn out to be great, I get to say, yeah, I told you it was a real possibility that would be great. And then if I hire someone and they turn out to be poor, I get to say, "Well, I told you it was a real possibility; it'd be great, but I didn't say it was a hundred percent." So, so okay, <laughs> what does that help you with? So that's kind of problem number one that it helps you doesn't help you with. Problem number two that it doesn't help you with is actually a very broad problem in decision making, which is so when we think about problems like confirmation bias, which is just I notice information that confirms the things that I believe to be true, and I don't notice information that disconfirms the beliefs uh, that I have. Or uh, something like availability bias, which is that I judge things to be more frequent that I have interacted with quite a bit or that are more vivid for me to recall. So when we take those, what you can see is those are all me problems right? They're all things that have to do with me trying to affirm my beliefs or or quirks of my own memory or my own experiences, the way that I've interacted with the world and what my motivations are about the way that I'm reasoning about the world. So Kahneman would call this uh, the inside view, that when we're reasoning about the world, we reason about it from the inside view. In other words, driven by our own experiences, our own knowledge, our own perspectives on the world and the mental models that we sort of, you know, apply to the world. And that's actually where the most of the bias is living, is in the inside view. So the antidote to the inside view is the outside view, which is essentially one of two things. It's what's true of the world in general. So an example of that would be a base rate, which is just how often does something happen in a situation similar to the one that I'm considering? So I'll give you an example of a base rate. So let's say it's when coronavirus doesn't exist yet and you're thinking about opening a restaurant in a certain area, And you think that you have a 90% chance of being successful by the end of the first year. So that would be your guess inside view. You think pretty well of yourself. You probably have some overconfidence. You're probably cherry picking some data that's kind of getting you to that conclusion. Again, not on purpose, uh, but because that's what we naturally do. But the base rate, this would be getting to the outside view, would be to say, well, how often do restaurants succeed within the first year in general in my area and if you look that up what you would find out is that the that the percentage of restaurants that are open after the first year is 40% so we can see how that helps to discipline the inside view if i think it's 90% and the world says it's 40% i ought to rethink my 90% number. So that's one way to do it. But another way to do it, and this is a great way to do it, is to actually get other people's perspectives on your situation. Because other people can be looking at your situation uh, and they can think very different things than you do about it. This is even if they have the exact same data, they may model the data differently than you. This is even if they have modeled the data exactly the same as you, they may think that you're supposed to do different things about it, given what the model tells you. So it's really, really good to get other people's perspective on the situation that you're considering, on the decision that you're considering. Well, in order to do that, you have to actually communicate clearly to other people what it is that you think, what it is that you believe to be true of the world. And this is where terms like real possibility really become a problem. Because if I tell you that something is a real possibility, it's so unclear that we you know, that we know what that means, right? You might think it means 20% and I might think it means 60%. And we could think that we totally agree that it's a real possibility this candidate could do well. And you may be thinking it's a 20% chance and I may be thinking it's a 60% chance and we actually disagree. But we can't find it out because we haven't expressed what we believe with any type of precision. So... That's where this idea of giving essentially a a bullseye estimate, right? Which would be like, I think it's a 55% chance and then giving a lower and upper bound now becomes really valuable because it's what gets people involved in the conversation, right? So if I give the bullseye estimate, like I think it's a 55% chance, you know exactly what I mean and you know whether you agree with that. And then when I give the lower and the upper bound, I tell you how certain I am about it. So I'm giving some sense to you of what my target area is. And what's really wonderful when you do that, when you say, well, I you know, I think the puppy is 15 pounds with a lower bound of five pounds and an upper bound of 25 pounds, is that you have said very clearly what your beliefs are in a way that you have actually invited me into the conversation. Inherent in that lower and upper bound is a question of, can you help me with this? I'm telling you how much certainty I have. I've obviously thought about it. I'm telling you something that's quite precise. And is there a way that you could help me narrow the range? And that creates really great decision-making, great conversations, because you actually are very clear about what the conversation is and you're maximizing your access to the outside view by doing so.
0: So this is a pretty involved process. And I imagine when you first start doing it, it'll take a long time, but I imagine the more you do it, you kind of, it becomes like a skill, becomes like intuitive. So we've talked about how to improve the quality of our decisions. The other issue with decision-making that people have is the amount of time, like the bandwidth people spend on making. They just agonize, paralysis by analysis. But I, one of my favorite sections, you give some sort of like hacks to short circuit that analysis by paralysis. Can you share a few that you think are really powerful that people can start using today and actually see a profound change in how much time they're spending on decisions?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. So I want to say like, when I talk about this stuff and I say like, Oh, you know, you should build out these decision trees and you should do this knowledge tracking and you should be, you know, thinking about the probability of different things happening. You know, the response is like, how am I ever going to make a decision again? (laughs) This is going to make me go so slow. And I just want to remind people that I was a poker player. (laughs) And obviously at the poker table, you have to, you know, you're making decisions very, very quickly and you're iterating them a lot. I I obviously don't think that you need to go really slow on every single decision. So a couple things on that. One is that if you do understand what a robust decision process looks like, uh, this is actually going to help you speed up your decisions because you're going to be able to hone in on the things that matter instead of spending your time spinning your wheels, thinking about things that don't matter. So this just is more efficient because it tells you what you should care about, number one. Number two is kind of like with riding a bike, you have to kind of understand it in a slow way or driving a car, like this is what the gas pedal does and this is what the brake pedal does. And if I turn the steering wheel this way, this is what happens. And before you can actually put that into a more you know automatic, quicker process. So understanding what a really robust decision process looks like will tell you what the heart of the matter is, but it will also help you to speed up just because you kind of understand what it would look like in its fullest form. But as far as most of the decisions that you're making, generally we kind of a little bit get it backwards with some decisions that we should be taking like quite a bit of time on, we'll often just go really fast. I think partly because we know it's complicated and so we sort of give up in that sense of, I don't want to guess because I don't know. And so therefore I'm just going to go with my gut. And there's a wide variety of decisions where we actually go quite slowly, where we should actually be speeding up. And it's because we're not thinking about the type of decision that we're facing very well. So in order to figure out when you can go fast, what you're essentially figuring out is, if I go really quickly the time that I'm saving comes at a cost. And that cost is that I'm probably going to increase my error rate. So the decision is just going to be less exact. It's going to be less accurate. And if I increase my error rate, that means that I may get a bad outcome more often than I would have if I would have taken more time. And so that once we sort of understand that, that there's this trade-off between time and accuracy, then we can figure out when we can go fast and when we should slow down. And it's when we can tolerate higher probability of a bad outcome. So let's think about when we can do that, because that's kind of the broad framework that we want to think it, about it through. And we can think about this through two things. One is impact and one is options. So I'll give you an example of a decision, type of decision that people take a very long time with. And I'm sure you've experienced this. So when we all used to go to restaurants, you probably know the person who would sit with the, with the menu. And... They'd be like staring at the menu, asking the wait staff for their opinion, asking every single person at the table what they were going to order, agonizing over it. And then once the wait staff came over to take the order, they'd be like, let me go last. <laughs> Do you know that person?
0: Of course. Yes.
1: Is it you maybe? No, not. it's you did not philosophy. Me. I'm guessing you go faster.
0: I, yeah, I go really fast. I just don't care.
1: Yeah. So, but you know that person and those people are very, very common. So it turns out that actually, if you look at the statistics, that when you take together what to wear, which I think is probably a faster decision in the pandemic because it's like sweatpants and then something that looks decent on top, but whatever. Um, uh, but what to wear, what to watch on Netflix and what to eat, that people are taking about six to seven hours of work week time per year on those decisions. That's pretty surprising.
0: Right, that's a lot of time.
1: That's a lot of time. And I believe that the reason that they do that actually is related to what we talked about with you know, why people sort of guess in these situations where it's really complicated or are unwilling to guess, they just go with their gut. And it's because when you're thinking about something like ordering off a menu, I think it feels very solvable, right? In kind of the know, know thyself sense, right? Like you should be able to figure out what your own preferences are. And you know a lot about food. And you, if you just asked the wait staff and you looked at a few more pictures of the dishes on Yelp, that you should be able to get this decision, and I'm going to put it in air quotes, right. Because it feels like a pretty simple decision that's about your own preferences and you should be able to get it right. And you're kind of in fear of you know, that moment where you've tried to decide between the chicken and the fish and you get the fish and it's yucky. And you, what do you say when that happens immediately? I made a mistake. I should have ordered the chicken. That's what you say immediately. But if we go back to that hindsight bias and resulting problem, that's just hindsight bias and resulting, right? Because obviously less a time machine, there's no way for you to know that 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 fish wasn't gonna be very good. What you knew is that you like chicken and fish. They both seem pretty good to you. Uh, You looked at the preparations and whatever. So it's weird to call that a mistake when the food comes back poorly. And it's weird to say I should have ordered the other thing or I should have known to do that. But that's what we do. So we're thinking very short term. So what we want to do is actually think about what is the long-term impact of that decision going awry. So I'll I'll just ask you. So you get crappy fish. We have a meal and and the fish is yucky. And you're you're sad because it was gross. And now I catch you in a year. So it's a year later. And I say to you, Brett, like. How's your year been? And I'll just ask you that. Like how's your year been? It's
0: been all things considered it's been pretty it's been all right.
1: Yeah, all things considered. That's yeah, that's my answer too. All things considered it it's been okay. So that do you remember that fish that you had when we were in that restaurant a year ago and it was kind of gross?
0: I don't even remember that. Right? What? Did it, what are you it have any about? effect
1: on your happiness today?
0: No, not none at all. Out,
1: outweighs the pandemic, right? Right. <laughs> so, right, so what if I catch you in a month?
0: Same thing. I would have been like, we had, I don't remember. I I, I would have forgotten about it or I just wouldn't even right. th- been thinking about it. Yeah.
1: Or how about a year? I mean, how about a week? I mean, you've had 21 meals since, since then.
0: No, wouldn't even have been thinking about it.
1: No, yeah. no. If so, it was,
0: if it was really expensive, I still, I might be a little, uh, having miffed. a little, yeah, miffed about it. But. Okay. So,
1: so this, this particular exercise of how would you know, does it affect my happiness in a year? Does it affect my happiness in a month? Does it affect my happiness in a week? It's called the happiness test. And the reason that we want to do this, this is a way for us to go have a conversation with the future version of ourself. So that the future version of ourselves can say, hey, by the way, that decision makes no difference to you. You can get bad fish. It's, I don't care. Here, here I am a year later, it, makes, it doesn't matter to me. And happiness here is meant as a proxy for whatever the goals are that you're trying to achieve. You know, happiness, you know, assuming when we reach our goals, one assumes that we're happier. So that's why I use happiness as kind of a proxy. So this is a really good test to apply to figure out if I can go fast or I can go slow. So when you feel yourself hung up in that decision and you're taking a lot of time with it, just say, am I going to care about this in a year? Am I going to care about this in a month? Am I going to care about this in a week? And the sooner that you're not going to care about it, whether it turns out well or poorly, because if the fish is great and I see you in a year, it also didn't affect your happiness at all. This is just low impact all around. The shorter the time period in which you're not going to care how it turns out, the faster you should go. So this is the first thing. This has to do with impact. This decision is low impact. Good or bad, it doesn't matter. Now, in the case of ordering off a menu, it's particularly low impact because it's also what we would call a repeating option. So remember I said to you, when I see you in a week, you've had 21 meals since then, assuming you eat three times a day. So that's what I'm referring to there is it's a repeating option. So even if your lunch is bad, you get to go have something for dinner. So you get to you get, basically get to try again pretty quickly. And that's gonna be true also of like what to wear or like what to watch on Netflix, dating right if a date if a date goes poorly so what it's just a date and it's a repeating option you can get right back on tinder or bumble or whatever your app is that you like and you can click and go on a date with somebody else so that's also a repeated option choosing classes in college it's a repeated option you get to do it a lot so when we're repeating options we can go a little bit faster with those decisions and when they're low impact, we can go pretty fast. So those are kind of the two things on the impact side. Now, there's another uh, framework that we want to think about, which is optionality, which has to do with how easy is it for me to quit the thing that I'm doing and go and do something else. So people may have heard, you know, Jeff Bezos talking about type one or type two decisions or two way door decisions versus one-way door decisions. And this is basically what he's getting at. The easier it is for me to quit something, the faster I can go because I'm going to be more tolerant of getting a bad outcome because I can switch. I can just quit and go do something else. So this is actually a really, really important concept for great decision-making. So we can apply that, like if you're in a hiring situation, the difference between hiring an intern versus hiring someone who's quite senior. It's gonna be harder on the company, on you to unwind a relationship with someone who's senior. So that is a less reversible decision. It also happens to be higher impact, right? So we've got sort of both of those things working together. Whereas an intern, if the intern doesn't work out well, that's relatively low impact, but it's also very easy to unwind. It's not hard to, you know, part ways with an intern in the same way that it can be very difficult to part ways with someone who's quite senior. So that there we can sort of see like, how should we be spending our decision-making time? And what you'll see, like people will spend like they'll find a couple of interns who look like they might be really great for the one job and they'll just agonize over that decision. Which one should I choose? I don't know. I don't know what to do, but this is a a decision which actually should be going pretty fast on. Certainly compared to how much time you might spend on the more senior person so that you can see how this kind of allows us to allocate our time, right? Dating versus marrying is another example of that. It's pretty easy to quit a date. People do it sometimes in the middle of the dates. (laughs) People do it sometimes before they actually sit down. They look across the room. I don't think that's very nice, but people will do that. I don't recommend it. I think you should at least talk to the person. But marrying, obviously, that is much harder to unwind. It's more difficult to actually quit that decision. So that's one of the things that we want to think about. And then you can start to take that and say, well, now I could actually take that into my decision-making life and use that as a strategy. This would be called decision stacking, which is when I think that I'm going to be facing a very big decision, what could I do that would give me a lot of information that would help me to improve the quality to improve the educated guesses I'm making that are going into that bigger decision, what could I do now that's pretty low impact and pretty reversible that would help me with that bigger decision? So like as an example, if you're thinking about moving to a new city or moving to a new neighborhood, renting first before you buy, that's an example of decision stacking. Agile software development is an example of decision stacking. I'm not gonna do like a large batch software development where I'm going to have to roll this out to my whole customer base all at once. I'm going to do a small test that's, you know, pretty beta to a few people and see how they like it, that little handful of people. And then if it doesn't work out, it's not a big deal. I can just roll the code back. I didn't, I didn't somehow upend my whole customer base. So you're lowering impact of making it much more reversible. Another really good example of this type of decision stacking strategy would be pop-up stores. Right? If I'm thinking about uh, releasing a new consumer packaged good, for example, and, you know, I don't I don't know whether people are going to respond to it and I'd like to test it maybe in a new city or something like that. I don't want to sign a year-long lease or try to put this across all Whole Foods or something like that. I can just do a pop-up store where, you know, the impact of that not working out is not so great. If I do find something good about it, then that's awesome. I can get some information out of that and it's very easy to reverse and shut down because I haven't made any long-term commitments and I'm doing this in a very small way. So this becomes actually really powerful that it doesn't just help you to figure out how to speed your decisions up, but it also gives you a decision strategy for improving the quality of those long-term commitments that you're going to have to make by trying to figure out how to do some lower impact, more reversible decisions beforehand in order to get you the information that you want for that longer term decision, which is basically what dating is. It's decision stacking.
0: So an- another tool you, you use that I started using right away after I read about it is if you're agonized between like two or three decisions, like you give the examples like, well, should I go to Paris or Rome? Like, ah, which one should I do? And you just make this super simple way to frame it. It's like, well, if you could only go to Rome, would you be happy? Yeah, I would be happy if that's the only place I could go this year. Well, if you go to Paris, would you be happy if that's the only place you go this year? Yeah, that would I'd be fine. I was like, well, then either one would be a good decision. So just pick, just flip a coin, basically.
1: Yeah, so, so people actually will ask me, like, when is it okay to go with your gut? And this is the situation where I say it's fine. And the reason why it's fine is because it doesn't matter. So I'm a big fan of using your gut to make decisions when it makes no difference. So use your gut to order off a menu is totally fine. But this is a good example. So, so obviously, if you're thinking about like a European vacation, and you're trying to decide between Paris or Rome, this doesn't pass the happiness test. If you have a crappy Rome vacation and I see you in a year, it probably did affect your happiness over the year. It's not a repeating option for most people. They can't just like go on another vacation in the next month, right? This clearly has big downside. It's very expensive. You can't really reverse it. Oh, I don't like Rome. Let me go somewhere else. Like immediately I'll just abandon and be somewhere else. I mean, these, you know, it doesn't sort of satisfy all that stuff that would tell you that you can go fast. This is clearly something that's very high impact. So, but what happens to us is that when we sort of get into these decisions and we get a couple of options and, and the category of the decision is high impact. My big vacation for the year, this is very high impact. Now we sort of get down into, we've got two options that we're trying to decide between in that category of thing that's going to really matter. And now, like, you know what everybody does. It's like you're on TripAdvisor, you're looking at every single review, you're (laughs) asking anybody you know who's been to either Paris or Rome, and it's just like total anxiety. But what you just pointed out with the only option test is that what's hanging you up about this decision, what makes this decision feel so hard is that the options are from your vantage point identical. And what I mean by from your vantage point is your vantage point where you aren't omniscient and you don't have a time machine. This is very, very important. You cannot see how those vacations would go in some kind of perfect sense where the image is crystal clear. It's gonna be cloudy, right? Same as a Boston problem. You don't have all the information you need about either place. But from the standpoint of the information that you do have and what you know about your preferences and what you can afford and the time that you have to go, Paris and Rome are kind of identical to each other given the acuity that you have on this issue right? So they're the same. And the way that you can find out they're the same is through the only option test. If, if Paris were the only option that, that I had, would I be really, really happy with it? Of course, the answer is yes. If Rome were the only option that I had, would I be really, really happy with it? Of course, the answer is yes. So this brings up a really important decision process, which is when a decision hard, is hard, it means it's easy. Meaning when a decision is hard in this particular way, that you have two options that you can't decide between. What that means is it's really easy because what that is telling you is that the options are identical, that there is really no difference between the two. So whichever one you choose, it's probably a pretty good option, which is what you get to through the only option test. So we can go back to that intern problem, right? You have two interns that you're thinking about for one job. They both seem really great. And now you're agonizing about which one you should hire. But you should just step back and say, if intern A was the only person I could hire, would I be ecstatic to have this person uh, as the person to fill the job? Yes. If intern B were the, the only person that I had available to hire, would I be ecstatic to have that person in the job? Yes. Okay, well then you're done. And you can flip a coin, you can go with your gut, you could ask someone else to decide, I don't care. But don't take any more time on the decision. And then we can sort of take this and go back to this We can take a step back and say, what is this telling us? And what it's telling us is that decisions are generally thresholding problems, that there's a sorting process, which is of all the options that I have available to me, which of them satisfies the requirements that I have for thinking that this is something that I would want to choose. So that's the sorting process, which means I need to get it above a certain threshold where this is going to be reasonable for me to choose. In the case of a European vacation, it's this is the amount of money that I have to spend. I'd like there to be great architecture. I'd like the food to be amazing. I want there to be history. I'd like it to be a place where I can walk everywhere as an example. Okay, so now you've figured out, here are my requirements. I want to look at the options that I have of places that I can go and figure out what meets that threshold. Once something is above that threshold, you're done with the sorting and now you're in the picking part, picking between options that all have met the threshold, that have all met that sorting process and satisfied that sorting process. And once you're in the picking part of the decision, flip a coin.
0: I love it. It's really, really helpful. Well, Annie, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book?
1: Okay, so... AnnieDuke.com is a great place to go find out about me because that has kind of all things Annie Duke on it. You can find my books there. You can find video of me talking. You can get links to podcasts that I've done. There's also a contact form. I actually love hearing from people who've heard me speak or have read my work. In fact, How to Decide was born of conversations with people who contacted me. Because what I found after I put out Thinking in Bets was that people were asking me, you know, okay, I I see what you were saying and thinking in bets about uncertainty and the way it really frustrates our decisions. How would I actually make great decisions? Like, what are the tools that I could use? What would the process look like? How can I think about these things in a clearer way? And I just realized they were asking me to write something that was more how-to. And so so I did. So I find it very helpful when people actually reach out to me. So please don't be afraid to do that. So that's one place you can find me. I'm on Twitter at Annie Duke and then the last thing is you know i would love it if people would check out the alliance for decision education kind of rolling back to the beginning of the conversation we really think it's a, an emergency right now to get decision education into k through 12 and i you know when we think about the information ecosystem that we live in you know and how much information is coming in and you know there's disinformation and a real ability to fall into serious echo chambers become extremized This necessity to be able to navigate the world and figure out what's true and then figure out what to do about it in both the information ecosystem that we're living in, but also, you know, right now, when we think about what's happening in terms of career trajectories and technology and what jobs are going to look like in five years or 10 years, there's so much around that. And it's changing so rapidly that... You know, equipping our youth to be able to sort of navigate that changing landscape, we think is just incredibly important. And as you pointed out, this is not something that's taught in school. And so at the Alliance, we're really trying to change that. So I would love it if people would check the Alliance for Decision Education out.
0: Fantastic. Well, Annie Duke, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me back.
0: My guest today was Annie Duke. She's the author of the book, How to Decide. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find out more information about her work at our website, annieduke.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash howtodecide, where you find links to resources where you delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives, as well as thousands of articles written over the years about pretty much anything you can think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so at Stitcher Premium. Head over to StitcherPremium.com, sign up, use code manliness at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS, and you can start enjoying ad free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member. Who you think we get something out of it? As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, is Brett McKay reminding you not only on your list they went podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's.